Hi, Nate and Tim. My name is Diana. I am from the Pacific Northwest. Hi, Nate and Tim. It's Scott from Cambridge in Ontario. This is Paige from Springfield. It's Maddie from Dayton, Ohio. Joshua Isles. It's Amber in Cincinnati. Hi, Nate and Tim. Hi, Nate and Tim. Hi, Nate and Tim. I'm Lee from Western Australia, from Perth. This is Frankie from Ulaanode in Russia. Hey, Nate and Tim. It's Sarah Beth. This is Bethany. I'm calling from New Zealand. It's Nicole from Charlotte, North Carolina. Jill from Essex in the UK. This is Tanner from Denver. Hi, Nate and Tim. This is Quinn from Indianapolis. So I think on the topic of hell, this idea of those who reject Jesus go to hell for eternity, the end, is just so ingrained. It never sat right with me that a person who's otherwise kind and loving should go to hell for just being the wrong religion. I was so terrified of not really being saved. I would pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over again. These days, I can't really square that idea of a loving God, an all-knowing God, would allow a person to suffer eternally if they know that that person will never turn back. If God is the source of all existence, why would they continue to be the source of the existence of something that's completely counter to themselves? In a Sunday school class where our teacher had told us to imagine a hummingbird carrying a drop of water across the ocean and dropping it on the rock of Gibraltar and then flying back and forth to get another drop of water and doing this over and over again. Once the rock started wearing away, this was only the beginning of eternity in hell. And this was after telling us that hell was literally people burning in the fire with no relief or any chance of relief. And so it just, it really sticks out in my mind as an adult that we were being taught this as children. When my family would go down south to the Gulf for vacations, we would drive through rural Alabama and there was always this sign or a billboard on the side of the road that had a cartoon depiction of the devil wielding a scythe and it said in big letters, go to church or the devil will get you. My views on hell changed when my Jewish father was dying of cancer. I had friends contact me, panicked, telling me that if he wasn't saved before he died, he'd be tormented forever and it would be all my fault. That led me to question everything I knew about a personal God. I was saved and I'd experienced the presence of Jesus, but in that particular culture, uh, punishment, withdrawal of love, and um, I guess the threat of hell was used to control people. Uh, and it certainly terrified me. would be lying if I said that it didn't still keep me up at night. Um, sometimes I think I could definitely end up there. Yes, I was terrified. Specifically, that the people I loved would go to hell if they were not converted to Christianity. And also that it was my job to convert them. So if I didn't, I would have failed and their eternal salvation or lack of it would be my fault. I also distinctly remember as a teenager worrying that I would be in heaven and sinning by missing the people who were in hell. Our church's youth group put on a production. Uh, it was designed to scare people into salvation. Um, they tried to make the production super scary, but at the at the end of at the end of it all, they um, the youth had ended up making it much more interesting to be a um, demon in hell than it was an angel in heaven. So why don't you start the show? All right, welcome back to Almost Heretical. Let's just dive right into hell. <laughs> okay. I remember one time we were at uh, Disney World, and we were going to this. I, 
I don't remember what it was, but there was some show and it was an outdoor like amphitheater, but it was over water and they had all these different sections and all the sections were named after Disney characters or like things that had to do with the Disney universe. And so my family, we walk in and there's this person telling you which section to go to. And, you know, we probably showed up late and uh, she was like doing the whole like airport, like directing the plane, you know, kind of thing. She's like, all right, I'll go all the way down to Hades, go all the way down to Hades. For, for for our group, um, I think that was from uh, Hercules. So it was, the, it was the Hercules section, but also just a really bad name for a section. It's fitting, though, seeing as Disneyland and Disney World are my literal hell. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, the first stage of hell, or, or maybe maybe more actually. It's like all of Los Angeles is yeah the first level of hell, and then <laughs> the closer you get to Disneyland, it's like the three hour line for the eighteen dollar uh, soda is like the deepest centermost level of hell. I remember parking in a Disneyland parking lot one time, and you have to like be shuttled in from the. I mean, even that is like that's probably the second level of hell right there, just to get to the. I feel like by the time you get to the park, you're at somewhere around three or four (laughs) okay so let's go down to Hades hey before we jump in quick announcement we're gonna start creating some extra content to put out on our Patreon page. Yeah, we're pretty excited. This will be all stuff for supporters. Uh, So go on Patreon, check it out. We'll have stuff from online conference calls with Nate and I to talk about various topics we get into on the show. We'll have a second podcast feed with extra content with Nate and I and our guests as well on the show. Uh, We'll also have some additional studies and mini rants uh, that we'll post to the Patreon page uh, and more ways to connect with us and others. So So yeah, if you want to uh, take part in all of that, you can get on board at patreon.com slash almost heretical. And for example, with this new series on hell we're doing, uh, in a few weeks, if you are a Patreon supporter, we will have a conversation on the topic of hell with some of you uh, to discuss together live our own thoughts, feelings uh, around the topic. And we'll also do some extra podcast content. So if you like this series, if you like the show and you want more of it, Patreon's the way to go. That's all. Back to the show. I just brought up the topic of hell on Facebook and Twitter with our audience and the response that you all <laughs> gave showed me that there's something here. It was, it's like struck a chord. Um, everyone has, it seems, some story or some experience or some line they heard in a sermon or just something on this topic. There's, we all have thoughts about it and it's either something we've just boxed up and like tossed away because we don't think that anymore or still kind of creeps into our minds sometimes. So just a little bit about my story. I don't know that I was really... I didn't really hear a whole ton about hell growing up. I, I mean, I, I knew it, it was like real and I didn't want to go there, but it wasn't like that was talked about that much. It was, it was mainly just talking about heaven and what we need to do to get right with God so we can, we can go there. Until I would say like probably college age, I started listening to a prominent Christian celebrity preacher, the, um, his podcast, and he talked a considerable amount about hell and avoiding that. Um, and our whole ministry kind of being centered around like getting people saved from hell so that we can go to heaven and, and needing to like be sold out for Jesus in order to, in order to do that. And that kind of led me into 
that's, that's sort of my launching pad, I guess, for like full-time ministry for a number of years, led me to be a pastor. I was actually, actually planted a church with that pastor. And Tim, you and I were a part of a ministry with that pastor and kind of under that same, I remember like Tim and I were roommates after college. We were, um, we were pastors and we were roommates in this, um, <laughs> there's this like bed bugs just like came back to my head. Um, no. Okay. So anyways, we were roommates and there's a lot of stories there we'll get to sometime, but every morning we would, we would come down with all the pastors. We would have like this meeting in the mornings before we went out to like low income housing and onto the streets to tell people about Jesus and do Bible studies and all this kind of stuff we would meet. And I remember like pretty much every morning we would say, you know, this could be our last day on earth or it could be the last day for, for someone that we're going to go talk to and we don't want them to go to hell. You know, let's, let's go like preach the gospel and like that would kind of like fire us up. And then uh, that was sort of during a nonprofit ministry that you and I were a part of. And then later I was a part of planting churches with that same pastor. And we were in kind of the inner city at that point and kind of a dangerous area of San Francisco. And we would go up onto this hill where there were projects and gun violence and all this gangs and that kind of stuff. And when we would go up every morning, we would like fire ourselves up to go do this kind of crazy and a little bit insane thing of to a small degree, putting our life on the line by talking about how we got to go save people from hell. We, you know, people are dropping into hell like every minute because people are dying. Let's go, let's go. We would like fire ourselves up and go up on the hill. And it worked. It, it actually worked. Like it actually fired me up to do this thing. Anyways, I don't know. So I don't have some like horror stories of of hell, but it was it was this uh, this process of like thinking and rethinking about what am I actually saying? What what am I teaching here? Because it seems like it's motivating a lot of what we do. I want to make sure that I know what I'm talking about here, and that sort of caused me. It was one of the things that caused me to kind of like step back from from teaching and and it kind of spun me into a lot of my like rethinking a lot of my theology and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what we want to talk about. This is a kind of a huge topic, huge in the sense that it's, it seems like it's been really important for the recent future of the church. And a lot of people have stories and and thoughts around it. Tim, what's your experience been? Yeah. uh, I mean, mine, I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist kind of fear mongering world. Uh, the thing is, you know, even your your story, all the stories uh, that we've heard and, and will continue to play in these episodes, uh, fear of this kind of caricature world of, of hell, um, it's ingrained everywhere in Western culture. And for people who are Christians, for people who aren't Christians, we kind of all have a shared caricature of kind of the good place, the bad place. And, uh, you know, sort of like the little white angel on one shoulder and the little red devil on the other. And the, the funny thing is like, you know, we get, I have gotten a lot of critical, uh, pushback when I have critiqued evangelicalism of saying you're just caricaturing, uh, the church or caricaturing theology. But, but the reality is so much of what people on the ground actually believe and teach is is a juvenile caricature, and especially I think that's true with hell, where the amount of people in church world who have a sophisticated, nuanced understanding of hell is such a small percentage. Uh, and I think that that caricature, the kind of violent, retributive God who's going to punish us forever for lying to your parents when you were five, is such an atrocious image, and the fact that that hasn't been widely called out as a, a false caricature of uh, Christian theology 
is one of the primary reasons people laugh off Christianity. Um, so I look back and I, I laugh at myself because, uh, similarly, I didn't grow up, you know, with a lot of ingrained fear, but then Nate, when you and I were in the same world of this kind of evangelism based on saving souls from hell, I actually remember, it must've been like eight years ago. I actually wrote a paper trying to, to justify. Oh dear. Actually, it's probably more like 10 years, uh, trying to justify, um, why fear of hell was a biblical motivation for evangelism. I wrote that paper. Uh, I wasn't in school. I was just like, no one read it. It was like for like six people. I, pr- I think I put it on Facebook. It might still be there, honestly, if you go to my Facebook. Um, but it was that because we were in that world where even if you didn't talk about hell much, that was the assumption. The assumption was that was the main threat loom- looming over humanity, not people's suffering, not economic disparity, not injustice. It was this threat of a future uh, soul going to hell. And so because that was how we were, as you say, Nate, pumping ourselves up to go do uh, evangelism or, or ministry, uh, I, tr- I tried to write a, a biblical uh, justification for why that is a good rationale. Now I, I look back at that and go, that's crazy. Uh, you don't see anyone in the New Testament um, doing what we were doing, which is pumping yourself up because souls are going to go to hell. Uh, we'll get into it. There are different senses in which uh, early church and New Testament writers um, did think people should uh, have an element of fear of judgment, uh, which again, we'll get into. But yeah, it was, it was more for me of going like that whole world. It wasn't the kind of fear mongering you see from the super fundamentalist world where people literally tell little kids like, you know, if you wear that skirt, you're going to go to hell. Uh, I was never around that. I never did that. Um, but what I feel like what we did was just a few degrees of decency away from that. You know what I mean? It was just a more polite, <laughs> a more polite version. This, we shared the same assumption, which is that the main problem is people are going to go to hell to be tortured by God. And that's what we got to save them from. I think for a lot of people that have come into their own, as far as theology goes, rethought things, moved past some ideas, just can, I, I, I'm, this is all me getting past the word deconstruction because I, I really hate that word. And it's become this kind of like cliche thing. Um, but really what it is, is you're just continuing to mature in your theology. You're continuing and expanding and moving past ideas and, and letting go of things that, that don't work or aren't good or aren't good news. And so as for a lot of us who have done that and are on that journey, it, there's there's still sometimes this fear of like, yeah, but what if I don't uh, believe the right things, enough of the right things in order to not go to hell? Like, even though we've moved past so many things, there's still this like, I've heard from some people like share that there's still, still kind of creeps into my head sometimes. Like, what if I'm believing the wrong thing? And then also maybe some family members or, or friends that haven't gone on this same journey. Sometimes the fear they have about, about you being on this journey is that they don't want you to go to hell. And so that's why they, that justifies them um, saying some of the things they say to you and um, being concerned about you in a certain way. And uh, you know, and I think some people on this journey have felt that from people that aren't on this journey. And so hell still, like even in the people that are, are rethinking theology and their doctrine and what they believe and, and how they, they um, live based on what they believe, like 
hell still kind of creeps in. This topic still creeps in even from outside forces, but still sometimes even in the back of our heads, like, am I believing enough of the right things? Am I letting go of like the essential doctrines I need to hold on to, to not go to hell and go to heaven? You know, like it's still, it's so prevalent that it's, it's really hard to move past that. I, I don't know if you've experienced that all at all, Tim, or, or heard people that have experienced that. Yeah, totally. And that's, uh, we'll get into is just that there's a weird, uh, conundrum in, modern Christianity, and that is that uh, so much of the ethos of Christianity, so much of the ethos of the New Testament, is that Jesus is trying to liberate us from fear. Uh, you know, Hebrews 2 talks about uh, one of the main problems plaguing humanity was that we were enslaved to the fear of death, and that part of Christ's victory was to liberate us from that fear. First uh, John, you got him talking about God, how God is love, and then immediately goes on to say, and, and love casts out all fear. In other words, if we believe God loves us and God is loving, then we shouldn't be afraid. So you have that, and then you have the flip side of it, which is what modern Western Christianity is, especially in evangelicalism, to many people, is the greatest source of fear in their lives. So how we how we reconcile these things uh kind of how we move forward through this is part of the conversation we're going to have but the reality is what christianity is because of hell in large part uh vast majority of it christianity does not liberate people from fear it instills fear in them and that fear can be uh, either for ourselves that fear can be for others as we hear all the time uh, that it wasn't we were scared of going to hell ourselves we felt saved but we were terrified that our brother was going to go to hell or our parents would go to hell or our grandparents were going to go to hell Uh, and we were some of us taught to deal with that fear (laughs) by you know various (laughs) various <laughs> various forms of masking or uh, minimizing uh, the tragedy that that actually would be. And then others got to a breaking point where we just said, like, I can't handle that idea and I don't want a heaven if, you know, my grandfather is in hell. Uh, and it's how, I think, how we deal with the fear of hell has pushed people in large part into various uh, kind of wings of Christianity. Uh, but I just think it's worth standing back and, <laughs> and noticing that the author of Hebrews, uh, the author of the, the Johannine epistles, they wanted us to be liberated from being afraid. And what most of the predominant voices who have uh, perpetuated the traditional view of hell as a place of torment that we need to be scared of, have have raised generation after generation of terrified human beings for whom Christianity isn't helping them be less afraid. It's creating deep anxiety and this kind of existential terror. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. 
<laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> yeah, and like children who are, we heard this from a number of you, and you're going to hear these stories mixed throughout these episodes, but like children who are like praying the sinner's prayer, like many, many times as a, as a kid to like, so that they are sure that they're not going to hell. I mean, like there's, there's, this is trauma. This is real, like stuff that you have to work through in therapy um, later in life. And we, we just need to stop. We need to stop this. And so this is why we care about this topic. Okay. So one other thing I want to say too, when you start to rethink or challenge or push back on ideas of hell, you are going to be, I'll just call it farewelled. <laughs> you will be exiled from mainstream Christianity. And we have we have evidence of this. So Rob Bell wrote a book about hell, um, raising questions and, and thinking through some of these topics. What was this like 10 years ago now, maybe? And what we saw happen from that book, I mean, this, this broke even outside of like Christian world into kind of like just pop culture even, that this guy writes this book about hell and the church tosses him out of the church. So you, what you saw happen was like the, the leaders of the evangelical war, world, um, probably foremost, John Piper, literally write a tweet that said, farewell, Rob Bell, after that book came out. Because what John Piper in his mind is thinking is that once you cross this line to no longer believing in these views on hell, these specific views on hell, which John Piper believes the Bible is clearly teaching, then you have no business calling yourself a Christian anymore. This is what happens, I guess, as you walk down this journey. And you just have to know that. You just have to know that um, as you start to rethink these things, like it does change how people view you and where they kind of classify and categorize you in their heads. Um, <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to the, to the journey to hell. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the other part of our story, right, Nate? Is so Piper's the one who, you know, notoriously tweeted uh, farewell Rob Bell um, and essentially led an army to make sure that this man would never feel allowed back inside of uh, the evangelical bubble. But then you and I, Nate, worked for the guy who wrote an entire book uh, challenging Love Wins. Uh, and you even helped mar market that book. Uh, but here's what I'm realizing. Like we did uh, retrospectively, and I think the whole uh, evangelical culture has done this. We've talked about how uh, anytime there's a new progressive uh, idea or critique of some tr part of tradition or a traditional ideology, that the conservative reaction basically is to double down on that conservative idea and become even more conservative and more entrenched. And I think what you and I did when we were sharing like how we used hell as this primary motivator is we, we felt so threatened by Rob Bell and we so aligned ourselves with the army of people who would stand up against the Rob Bells of the world that we actually doubled down on hell. I think like <laughs> Rob Bell's book, trying to get people to rethink hell and ask good questions about it, made us think even less and ask even fewer questions and then made 
the fear of hell an even more important idea as a reaction. Like the pendulum for us swung even further and we just rode uh, rode that pendulum. So now, I mean, I'm going to try uh, when we get into, you know, thinking critically about stuff, I'm going to try to not uh, redo the wheel, beat the dead horse. Like there's a whole wave, even within conservative evangelicalism of people rethinking hell. I mean, there are whole conferences called rethinking hell. Um, especially re- rethinking the idea of eternal conscious torment to kind of moving towards an annihilationist view. Uh, that stuff's been out there. It's been pretty popular. So we're not going to uh, cover all of that. But then what's happening on the other side, right, is this doubling down, make, <laughs> doubling down on the traditional caricature of God as uh, the tormentor. Do you think the reason is because if you remove hell from that worldview, everything kind of collapses? Is that why it's so, why do you see so much doubling down and why it's such an important topic? Well, I think it's part of it. Why, why are people doubling down on white supremacy right now? You know, why are people doubling down on patriarchal gender roles? It's the same thing. Any, any criticism to an essential idea to your camp, uh, most people will not listen to the criticism. They will double down on uh, on the tradition. And so I just think this is one other example. It is essential. Uh, <laughs> a view of hell as God punishing you is essential to the view of penal substitutionary atonement as the gospel. So to question either of those is to question the entire Christianity of, of most of evangelicalism. So it is an essential view. It's one that uh, people are particularly dogmatic about. Uh, but I think it's just like anything. You know, the reason why Rob Bell was farewelled is people thought that to to ask the questions he was even asking, which some of them were just basic Bible study questions, uh, was to declare himself not a faithful Christian. Like that's... Uh, Views on hell are just like views on homosexuality, views on women in ministry. To many people in conservative uh, camps, these are gospel issues, right? So uh, these are these are issues that people want to get together and write statements about. Uh, they're those kinds of uh, ideas. So there's not a lot of wiggle room. I think that is growing because enough conservatives <laughs> have said, hey, there's even two conservative positions and we should be able to have... Uh, a dialogue between these two conservative uh, ways of thinking about hell. But of course we'll remember that like what everybody said about Rob Bell is he was a closet universalist. Right. And so that you word, it's kind of like the socialist word, right? If you cross somebody's ideological line, uh, then you can easily get labeled something. And in this conversation, that label is uh, a universalist. And so that, what that word means, you know, just like being called heretical or being called, you know, uh, being called a feminist, uh, whatever, uh, means you're outside, outside the camp. And so part of what I laugh kind of looking back on is like, uh, even the idea that felt would have felt scary back in those years when I was writing that paper and all that. Uh, I now think (laughs) if that's as far as we could go, for instance, moving to an annihilationist position, and that's all we're willing to consider, like we're still swimming in a complete, uh, conservative uh, and limited uh, mindset in terms of what hell could actually be. Uh, I was baptized as an infant around the ages of 13. uh, I had a dream that demons were coming out of hell and grabbing me and pulling me down into hell because I wasn't baptized. 
I was raised a pastor's kid. The concept of hell has always been there looming. That was kind of the reason for salvation. That's why I trust Jesus, so I don't have to go to this horrible, dark, miserable, you know, flamey place. To even consider an alternative to that, even if it seems the Bible is clear that there is an alternative, is a frightening thing. Where did this idea come from that there's this place that you go if you're a bad person or that's that's what the world thinks right and then in the church it's where you go if you reject god you reject his love and you reject jesus where you go if you don't believe the right doctrines or yeah that's and that's like the other the other group that would say um more extreme group that would say where you go if you don't believe the right things and you don't um hold to a certain biblical interpretation (laughs) if you don't hold to a certain biblical interpretation about hell then you're going there. <laughs> right. So here, here's how we're going to organize uh, these conversations. We're going to have one conversation now, uh, basically having a philosophical discussion about how this idea came about, like how to even think about hell. What could hell possibly be if we just think uh, theoretically? And then uh, secondly, we'll have a, a scriptural, you know, kind of biblical study conversation in terms of uh, what are the words, phrases, ideas within the Bible uh, where the idea of a hell uh, came from and how should we be interpreting uh, those passages. But the the first one is to say this idea has been around forever. Uh, We, uh, Western Christians, get our idea from Christianity, which got its idea from Judaism, but Judaism got its idea from the variety of ancient Near Eastern uh, religions, which all had views of a cosmos and and this plethora of uh, divine non-human beings, uh, and and then also had views of some sort of underworld. And there, with most religious ideas, there's similarities and differences between what Israel came to believe and what its uh, neighbors came to believe. And then Christianity has, I'll just say, the New Testament did some stuff with those ideas, but then the history of Christianity has then done things with those ideas that the New Testament never had in mind. So, for instance, just the, the singular human being of Dante has done probably as much to shape how you and I today think about hell and imagine hell long after the Bible was was completed and closed. Uh, And those ideas have kind of formed in our imagination. But the basic idea of there being some sort of place of uh, imprisonment or judgment or or where we go after we die and how to construe that uh, has been around for forever. But but here's what I think is like so much of the conversation has to do with an a limitation of our imagination. And then you have different, basically, postures or attitudes across the board of like, no, we absolutely know what we can believe and we have to believe these things to the other extreme of people just saying, how in the world would we ever know what is actually on the other side of death? It can't be reported. Like, let's just be open-handed with those those things. Uh, and you've got, you know, within even just modern Christian history, uh, various stops along, along that spectrum. But here's the, the most important piece, I think, when we kind of jump into the philosophical thing uh, is to start with, is that there, there is a crux 
a conundrum that is built into any conversation uh, about this, uh, which we'll get into when we kind of look at different views. And that is that most of us deep down actually do want some form of judgment. Like we do want to believe that there is an ultimate and divine power that has the ability to hold evil people accountable. Most of us, especially those who are not rich and powerful people, uh, do not want to believe in a world where everybody is going to get away with whatever they're doing to us right now. We don't want to believe in a world where Hitler will deal with zero accountability. So just look at the actual psychology on the ground when, when people are made victims. You know, if something is done to you, if you're a victim of sexual assault, or if someone you loved was murdered, what real victims long for... First, you, you want things to be made right, but say in the case of someone being murdered, that's, that's not possible. You can't get that loved one back. Yeah. What people long for is justice. Now, some people are going to long for revenge, right, and actually <laughs> seek to destroy that other person, whether themselves or through the courts. Like every good Hollywood movie out there. Yeah, yeah it's the Liam Neeson, you know, like ultimate vengeance. I have a specific and, set of skills. <laughs> And I think what Christianity and what Jesus calls us to is to seek something higher than that and better than that. Uh, but so much, and this is where I've just really railed against um, views of atonement, views of Christianity as, as easy forgiveness that are typically tied to penal substitutionary atonement, that say that what the good news is, is God is just not going to deal with our sin. He's just not going to deal with evil. Like, A, that has nothing to do with the New Testament witness of what Christianity is. Wait, 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 wait who says, who says our, he's just not going to deal with her? The idea so. is if you believe the right things and you believe in Jesus, you can be as evil as all get out, but you will be forgiven for it. Uh, that, and regardless of how many because people believe Je- Because that, Jesus already dealt with it, is what they would say. They're not, they're, they wouldn't say he's not going to deal with it. But the reality is... In that belief system, Jesus hasn't dealt with it. Jesus has just supposedly paid your penalty. So it hasn't been dealt with. Yeah, that's true. Okay. The reality is, if I, if I kill someone you love, Nate, and then I pray the sinner's prayer, and I receive forgiveness for that, but nothing is ever done for you to actually get justice for what I did to you, then in the end, what, to me, what that is, is a, is a religion of the oppressor. It is a religion that rids oppressors and abusers and evildoers of their guilt and their, their requirement of some sort of justice. So that's where I've, I've pushed back on that because I go, no, on, only the rich and powerful want that kind of religion. What Judaism was for thousands of years was poor and oppressed and victimized people believing throughout the generations that there was a God who would bring about justice and would vindicate the, the victims, would raise up the victims. So whatever Christianity is, it can't be the opposite of that, right? Christianity cannot be the declaration to the world that there will never be justice for victimized people, that there will never be judgment. So, so that's the thing. We'll get into kind of like how to think about this, and it's all complicated to think about, and, and you have to get nuanced to avoid having some pretty ugly caricatures. But one of the cruxes is 
I think deep down, most of us do really want there to be a higher power than Donald Trump, a higher power than our abusive father, a higher power than our abusive spouse, someone above and beyond who we can look to, to, to rescue us and, and restore justice. And again, hopefully that doesn't mean we just want vengeance, but that doesn't mean we don't want any accountability. So at the center of Jewish and Christian ideology, literally at the very center of it, is the, is the belief in a judgment where God will come make things right by finally exerting God's higher power. But so here, here's something we need to keep in mind. When we talk about hell, we're talking about two very different questions, and this will especially play out when we get into uh, the New Testament language around Hades and Gehenna and Sheol and all that, is one question is how will God do that? How will God bring about judgment? When will God do it? What will it look like when God does it? What will that require? But, but the question is oriented around the desire for, for judgment. And, and when we're talking about Christianity and, and Judaism, it's a desire for the oppressed and marginalized to, that are not in power now uh, to, to be uh, given justice. But then there's a very, a very separate question, which is, okay, and, and the shorthand of the answer to that question uh, in Jewish and Christian thinking is there will be a final day of judgment where this age ends, God deals with what needs to be dealt with, purges evil, creates a new world, and then we go on to live in this new created world. Okay, But then you have a secondary question, which has to be separated, otherwise I think we get really confused, is, well, what happens if I die before that event? What happens when I die? And that question is wrapped up with, what does it mean to be human? Are we a soul? Are we a body that has a soul? Do we go on in existence? What happens when a human body stops breathing and a heart stops beating? Sounds like a nice R&B song or something. <laughs> so those are two separate questions. And, and we'll kind of see that there's, there's a ton of overlap. But those are two different questions. How will God bring about judgment? And what will God's judgment be like? And what happens to us after we die? And your question, Nate, of where do these ideas come from? Throughout human history, as far back as we know, people have asked both of those questions. And our current idea of hell has to do with two different answers to those two questions. But part of the confusion, part of why we have such an ugly caricature in our culture, is we've lumped those questions and those two answers into one thing and called it hell. Okay, so if we just start with a, a basic building block. Again, we'll get into the... the biblical theology uh, next time. Start with a basic, bu basic building block that for, for the world to be restored to a paradise, a, a garden like Eden. You can't have bad people there. You can't have Hitlers, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, you can't even have uh, the abusive fathers. Like, there's a scale of evil, right? But evil can't. What about the guy exist. that stole to feed his family? Can you have that guy? And, okay, so, so there you begin to get into like <laughs> the blur of it, right? So you get into all these questions, theoretical, philosophical questions of like what all needs to be purged, right? And how will that purging happen? And how long can it take? And whose choice will it be, right? So, so use Hitler because he's such a uh, such an easy example. 
So Hitler cannot want to murder all of the Jews and people of color and be allowed to be in my heaven because that wouldn't be heaven for me, right? Okay, so what, let's just think, like what are the options? <laughs> like what are the options? If, if I'm worthy of being in a place called heaven because I won't destroy it, just, I'm not saying that's true, but supp suppose that's true. Up for debate. Yeah, up for debate. <laughs> it's all debatable. Uh, <laughs> if I'm okay and God's trying to make a heaven for me and you and however many others, another big question, how many? Uh, how many are in, how many are out? If that's the goal, to try to create this new world rid of evil, then what will God do with Hitler? And that's where the answers to that question end up forming different views uh, of hell. So, Nate, I mean, I've got a list here, but why don't you kind of just run through the hypothetical of like in your own imagination, mm. your own philosophizing, like what are what are the options theoretically for God to do? Um, well, we can go right to the fiery place. Um, and so there's like this lake of fire and Hitler's burning in that lake for all of eternity but he doesn't burn up uh he's just kind of like you know you just you just completely tortured and you're conscious for the whole thing forever so there's that that's kind of like maybe the far the far end of the spectrum right um then like i'd say like on the other end of the spectrum is what's called like the annihilationist view where he just ceases to exist and he's gone he doesn't get to live on and uh, just he is no more. Um, and there's probably like a ton of views in between there that have been um, proposed throughout time for what could happen. But I don't know. I feel like those are sort of the if – if he's not getting into heaven, if he's not getting into whatever that is. It, yeah, it's, it's funny that you put those two views. So one is uh, essentially – you didn't say this, but essentially the idea is Hitler's never getting in. Uh, and this typically is what is called eternal conscious torment. Most people that have kind of done the hell studies will sh call it ECT for shorthand. It is the traditional view, especially since about 500 years into church, church history. Uh, but that is that Hitler's never getting in. Hell is, is permanent, and it's a place God has created, an, an existence that God has created specifically for eternally punishing the Hitlers of the world. Oh, I thought of another one. So you could do the, like, he's going to restore Hitler, which is a project. That is a project. <laughs> I get it. Um, but you could try to rehabilitate um, so that he could come to heaven and be in heaven, whatever that is. So that's, um, it's not like punishment. It's kind of like a, kind of back to the Nakasawa episode of restorative justice, right? So that's another one. Yeah, or you could call it punishment, but it, it's the idea that the punishment is restorative. It's meant to bring about transformation so that Hitler would no longer be uh, the leader of the Nazis, mass murderer, full of hate human being, that he would be uh, a kind and decent human being. Um, so, that's a, so that's another view, right? So, or another possibility. We'll get into views in a sec. One is that basically God just parses people out. You're in, you're out. And there's no plan of moving one from one place to the other. Uh, and whatever happens to those people who are deemed out, uh, 
happens to them for for a lifetime. So that <laughs> well, that makes me think of like the the sheep and the goats, right? Separating the sheep from the goats, and it all came down to which I heard this preached a lot. It all came down to what you did for the poor. So if you didn't take care of the poor, then you went to hell, and if you did, then you went to uh, paradise. I mean, I I like that view way better than the idea that it all comes down to whether you prayed the right prayer or believed the right believe Protestant the right doctrines. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 a little better. But but okay, so again, try to think. I, I think part of this Nate is revealing how conservative your imagination is <laughs> actually been shaped, uh, even though. Okay, hold on. Let me let me try to think of some radical stuff here. Um, <laughs> Okay, so other options? Yeah, just what can God do with Hitler to create heaven for you? I guess, I mean, I, I really like the one of, like, trying to restore uh, restore him to an extent or something. I mean, like, I feel like the ultimate would be Hitler apologizing and, like, trying to make right, like, what he did what he did that was wrong. Like, that's that, when I just think about, like, what would the truest, like, deepest longing of what I would want to see, that's what it would be, I guess. So I, I don't know, like, I guess that's not really... The most compelling. Yeah, the most compelling thing would be to see, you know, to wake up one morning and Donald Trump is, like, going to hold a, a press conference and he's like, I'm stepping down because um, I I don't want to continue to do these things. I'm turning, I'm... Cha- or not even stepping down. I'm going to, like, change and I'm going to now, like, help all the people that I've been hurting and I'm going to... You know what I'm saying? Like, something like that. I'm giving away all the money. He probably only has, like, 10 bucks. But, like, I'm giving away all the money I have. Um, You know what I mean? Like, something like that. that. That's what I feel like I... My deepest core want to see, even if part of me wants to see someone, like... Yes, I'll admit, like, part of me wants to see Donald Trump taken away in handcuffs. Like, I, I do. But, but I think that at the core, my core, like what I actually want is to see someone make amends, make right for what they did. Right. Yeah. And I think that that reveals, if this is true, uh, that you're a pretty decent human being, Nate, and <laughs> have a decent sensibility. Uh, and But I don't even think you need to to contradict wanting in an ideal world for the, the Trumps and the Hitlers and whoever else to... Uh, come to their senses and change and to to make things right. I don't think you need to contradict that with wanting Donald Trump to go off in handcuffs, right? Part of the idea <laughs> inherent in in any sort of restorative justice and inherent to any decent conversation about hell is what kind of accountability would be required to bring the Donald Trumps and the Hitlers of the world to that actual change. <laughs> okay. We're gonna get, oh, I'm okay. Man. For a caveat, I can't stand Donald Trump. I don't think he's Hitler. If that if you needed to hear that, you're probably listening to the wrong show, but <laughs> he, here's what here's actually how this example is helpful. I don't see any possibility. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't have any hope for for Donald Trump in this life repenting. I don't have any hope that he has the human capacity to do that. Just like I don't think many people had any hope that Hitler would of his own volition change his ways <laughs> and lay down his his evil life in order to to make things right again. And so, why why did so many people who were probably pretty nonviolent human beings become willing to go to war 
to, uh, and I'm not advocating for just war or saying that World War II was, was unjust, unjust. I'm simply saying, why did so many people do that? Because they came to the idea that to wait around <laughs> for this guy to come to his own senses, to change on his own volition, was a, was a fool's hope. That, that wouldn't happen. So I just want to highlight that because to point to that psychology helps frame this philosophical conversation, what is hell? Part of the answer is hell is the, ne- the necessary e- experience or just a theoretical idea that is connected to the hope for a, a perfectly peaceful and non-evil place that we have dubbed heaven, right? Some form of accountability for the Hitlers of the world is required for there to be a heaven. So the, so the question we're asking now is like, how would that actually happen? So one is... The first two that you said, which you called, uh, said are ends of a spectrum, I actually think are right next to each other. The spectrum goes way out uh, toward the other side. One is eternal consciousness. Wait, which direction does it go? Towards universalism. So, uh, oh, well, yeah, but I said, I said, like, if you, if you, okay, okay, time out. You said if he can't go to heaven. No. Okay, I might have said that. Which would be you, you But just think which would be no, universal. No, no. So I threw that I, I threw that out of my head. Like I can't okay, he's not going. So then Okay, what are my options? We'll listen back to the tape. I could have misspoken. The <laughs> the question I want you to ask is is not don't start with the assumption that Hitler can't be in your heaven. Start with the assumption that Hitler can't be Hitler and be in your heaven, right? So then what does God need to do with Hitler as we have known him? So one option is, like you said, uh, you give up any hope on Hitler ever changing, or at least he runs out of time, right? Which I think is kind of popular in the mindset. It has to happen before that final breath, right? So all the stories of people racing to someone's deathbed to try to convert them on their deathbed, and all the stories that still get published, supposedly, of, you know, atheists having conversions on their deathbed, and why conservative Christians love those stories so much— uh, is it's about running out of time. So if Hitler runs out of time, then he's never getting into heaven. So then we can ask, oh, well, what happens to him? So one version is God tortures him forever, <laughs> right? Uh, which to many of us is, has become a, a gross version. We'll talk about that. Another version is there's no need to just punish this this person and just be cruel for cruelty's sake. Uh, so God would just destroy this person. So Hitler would just die. And that's the annihilationist view, which is at least far better than uh, or far more uh, appetizing morally to us than the idea of God sitting around torturing Hitler for fun. Right. And so here's something I was kind of reflecting on is like if I think there are some people in my life who I have known or in the world who I want judgment for, I want to be brought to justice uh, and when I picture those people, I, I can go like, <laughs> I would, you know, if I'm actually watching God, like put them through the ringer, I think that would maybe be fun for like a day. Like if I'm really in the heat of the anger, I could watch that person. And I ain't even saying this. I'm like, not even a day, like maybe five minutes. I was going to say, that's a long time. Yeah. I mean, 24 so hours, <laughs> that's a long time. So I but, can't even then, watch some bad television programming for an, a whole day. Right. So then you think of the Hitlers of the world and I'm like, maybe a week. Right. But in, 
but in just this theoretical world where I'm supposed to imagine myself rejoicing alongside the idea of watching God, or maybe even not watching, but knowing that God is torturing somebody, even Hitler, day after day after day. Within a month, I think God is a monster. Within a year, that heaven is no longer heaven for me. And I think for billions of humans <laughs> who, have, who have lived on this planet, even if it's Hitler, even if it's the person who killed your son, uh, living in a world where you're supposed to be worshiping a deity and knowing that what that deity is doing <laughs> is for his own glory, bringing about the perpetual torture of another being. I'm no longer loving this existence, right? Okay, but this all this is why I think it's also tied to your view of atonement and what Jesus did to save us from sin and from death. Because if you think that he did that to Jesus, he sent him to hell, he tortured him. I know it didn't go on for like eternity, but like if if it's like the what well, I guess what I, I don't know if I was taught this or like what I always thought was like it's the it's the pinnacle of suffering that Jesus went through, right? And God did that under that view, then like I, it's kind of a like it's not that hard to believe that He would do that to people, right? Totally. And actually, I just want to read. <laughs> Uh, some of these are direct quotes. Some of them are paraphrases of what some people throughout history have said in terms of this emotional idea. If I'm going to be in heaven and someone else is going to be in hell. And I think uh, we'll see kind of the spectrum of not just thinking but feeling uh, different psychologies uh, around hell. And some of them I clearly circle and I go, I would never want to have another conversation with that human being. Uh, so Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> one of the most, uh, famous and, uh, most read of the church doctors said that the saved, those who are in heaven will have no pity on the damned the, and the knowledge of the torments of the damned. That thing I just said, I, it would no longer be heaven for me. Uh, he said that actually while you're in heaven, having knowledge that God is torturing the Hitlers of the world, or even just the people who didn't believe in Christianity of the world, will increase the felicity of the blessed in heaven. It's a direct quote. That means is it'll actually make us happier knowing that we're not in hell. So knowing that that's what could have been our existence, that we could still be tortured a million years in, will just make us enjoy the fact that we're in heaven all the more. Yikes. <laughs> Tertullian... Uh, another of the uh, kind of famous uh, church fathers said that the saved will relish the destruction of, of those in hell. Martin Luther said the saved will rejoice seeing even their loved ones roasted in hell. Pascal, you know Pascal's wager? Yeah. Blaise Pascal, French guy, said that the damnation of unbaptized babies is just part of the great mystery of the cosmos. And we just can't understand it and we shouldn't try. <laughs> but then John Calvin actually said that, that hell is full, chocked full of unbaptized babies. And then very similar to some of these is you get the modern day uh, reiterations of people like John Piper who say that the damnation of those who, in, in Piper's mind, have been predestined from eternity past 
to be little babies, perhaps, or 10-year-olds, or 15-year-olds, or whatever, to be punished eternally, suffering, for millions and millions and millions of years, that that brings glory to God, that torture, and is something that should lead us to praise, and that it is morally correct, it is morally correct for the saved to feel no pity for the damned, like someone turning their eyes from a bad accident on the side of the road. The logic here being, you can't fix it, it's already out of your control, and then the additional logic being that for such a great vast being as God, even the smallest sin, like lying to your parents, is equal in weight to (laughs) that smallest little sin being punished with such a massive punishment as billions of years of fiery torment. Hmm. So that's... Well, and then along with that is like original sin, right? Like we're all... It doesn't, even before we're born, we're born with this sin nature. And so that is, it doesn't actually matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're Hitler. It doesn't matter if you just stole that, you know, 10 cent bubble gum from the store when you were eight years old. You were already a sinner and in need of being saved, right? So like... It kind of does away with like your deeds even. Right. And that's how you end up with with babies in hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I say all that to, to paint, and, and those are real. Those people really said those things. Uh, to paint one side of the spectrum of how people think that we as Christians should be feeling about this idea of hell. But, but let me paint another side. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who you could make an, an argument for being uh, the greatest of all the church fathers, who has been well listened to in the Eastern church and completely ignored in the Western church, uh, and who's the oldest voice on this list, said that not only will God's love be able to save everyone, that one day God will be able to transform Hitler to no longer being Hitler because God is, is that good and loving and never gives up on people, uh, but also that God would even be able to save Satan. Farewell, Gregory. <laughs> this is one of the great doctors of the church, never deemed a heretic, written some of the most important works in, in the patristic uh, world, a, f- a flat-out universalist that even Satan uh, would, s- would some point and in some way uh, come to, to be in heaven. So fast forward, you know, uh, 1,400 years or something, and you have uh, George MacDonald say that it's better to go to hell to be with your brother than to leave him there to be in heaven. And, and not just better, but better and more Christian. And he was drawing from his Christianity, his Christian faith, to say, what did Jesus do? Jesus left, this Philippians 2, he, he left his power, He left his place at the throne. He left his place in heaven to come and be with suffering human beings. And his argument was that it will not be heaven. The point of heaven is that we've all been made so loving and so Christ-like, so empathetic (laughs) that we do no harm to one another. If that were the case, what we would all do is leave that place and go be with those who are suffering in hell. And his argument is basically that there would be no heaven if we all knew that our brothers and sisters were being tortured in hell. This makes me think of a blog post that Rachel Held Evans wrote a number of years back talking about the moral climax of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And essentially there's this there's this slave that um, Huck Finn has been like helping to kind of hide. And uh, 
he realizes like in his Sunday school teaching that helping to hide a slave and doing what he's been doing, um, the quote is, would be, he'd go to everlasting fire for doing that. And then there's this, there's this line where he's like, he's trying to decide, like, should I tell the slave's owner, like where they are or, or what should I do here? And there's this line that Mark Twain writes of Huck getting to this point of realizing like, all right, then I'll go to hell. That's the line. He's, de- he's deciding like, okay, then I'll go, I'll go to hell in order to save Jim, the slave. And like, I just, I've always loved that line. Um, and it really made me think about what you were you were talking about there. Like, isn't like everything we're taught about what Christianity is, isn't it we would leave then and go and try to help and save these people? Not we'll do that for the duration of the time we're breathing, but then after that, like, peace, we're done. Like, wouldn't we want to see that and wouldn't we want to be a part of that work? Right. Yeah, it's like the quip, you know, someone asks who goes to hell and the response is Jesus does. Hmm. And, and it's kind of trying to you know, put this thing uh, sort of back in its face. But it is that. Yeah, the idea is the idea of heaven, the Christian idea of heaven is not just uh, the get out of hell free, but it's that we are all made perfectly Christ-like to be the, per- the perfect uh, full humans who only love and do no harm. Right. So if if Jesus is the model then how could we possibly believe that what that existence would be would be relishing in the suffering, especially the over-the-top, monstrously over-the-top, million years long, artificially induced suffering of human beings, right? So that's part of the, the grotesqueness of the eternal conscious torment view to so many people is that the idea is this is all happening post-resurrection for most people, right? So people have died, then God is going to raise them up and create an existence that God artificially sustains to keep them alive so that they can suffer, <laughs> right? Hmm. So on one end, so one view you've got, that's what hell is, and, and we're going to love it. <laughs> then you've got a whole other end of the spectrum that says, if that's what hell is, I don't want any part of heaven. I want nothing to do with that. Now, a lot of those people have simply said, and therefore that's why I'm not a Christian, because this is crazy. Get me out of here. What I just pointed out is, is some famous Christians, including one of the most influential in the history of, of the church, Gregory of Nyssa, saying, and therefore that isn't what hell is, hmm. <laughs> right? So then there are others in between. So Karl Barth, who's been one of the heroes of, of Protestant Christianity, uh, was kind of in a, a middle ground and sort of represents this, this whole camp to itself. He's kind of famous for saying, anyone who doesn't believe in universalism is an ox, but anyone who teaches it is an ass. And we'll kind of get into this on the next episode. It's, it's coming from he's trying to hold the tension that there seems to be a, te- a testimony in both directions uh, in the New Testament supporting both universalism, that every single human being that has ever lived will one day be transformed and saved, and the opposite, the threat that some people will for some reason, whether it's their own desire or God's will, uh, will not be saved. So he's kind of sitting in this middle camp. It's kind of what I've said a lot of times. If you don't at least want universalism to be true, you're an ass. Uh, and, and I don't think you're, you are thinking or feeling like a, like a Christian. If you actually have convinced yourself that the suffering of anyone, let alone, and, and this is where you know people like Rachel Held Evans have said is they just broke, is picturing the majority of humans who have ever lived <laughs> to be enduring that suffering, 
right? So for many of us, it's the idea of our of our close family member, a close friend, and that's kind of a cracking point. Is like, and, and this is I think what this statement characterizes a posture uh, towards this idea of hell that that I think is the most Christian one, which is to say, heaven would not be heaven without so and so. If if I knew that my mother or my spouse or my daughter was was not here, I could not experience bliss. I would be in grief for the rest of my life. Now that still is a hypothetical, right? Who knows what what we will actually experience or what we would actually feel in the face of that experience. But I think what that is is a projection of a of a very Christian attitude which is kind of like that we are so focused away from ourselves that we are so focused on loving others and that love is so real that we don't believe we could actually enjoy a selfish happiness uh, while people that we love are suffering. And I think a lot of people say that is the definition of love is the inability to experience yourself in heaven while someone you love is experiencing hell. Hmm. So uh, one of the philosophers and modern day theologians who I think has done some of the best work in just thinking through hell, uh, of course, is, is not a Protestant. He, he's Eastern Orthodox, is David Bentley Hart. Uh, and we'll get into some of his thinking, but uh, in some of his stuff, he'll just say that for some people, and I, I think he's thinking evangelicals here, uh, hell is actually the best part of the story. And he had a line that I don't know if I'll ever forget, is that what some people really deep down want is to be in a gated community forever and ever. The feeling of being on the inside group and knowing that others can't get what you have, that that is what Christianity at the end of the day gives them. That's the part of Christianity at the end of the day that gives them the most value. And I would just say, if that's what heaven is full of, I I don't want to be there. (laughs) Right? So... So here's, so here's kind of just lay the framework, and then we can just kind of chat through it. So you've got a few views that essentially assume God decides at some point in time, and usually it's like at the point of death, that some people are in and some people are out. He's either going to torture those people forever, eternal conscious torment. He's going to destroy them now, and that, that just means that their life will be done forever. Their punishment will last forever uh, because they will be dead. But then you've got C.S. Lewis's view, which is kind of a twist on the traditional view. It's still v- very close to the traditional. Uh, but his idea is the people in hell are just given a place. So in The Great Divorce, he pictures this as just this never-ending city landscape. They're given a place to do as they will. And it's kept separate so that it doesn't invade and ruin heaven. But they basically get to do what they want. God isn't killing them or torturing them, but what they do with that place is they turn it into a hell themselves. So it's the famous line of hell's a place that's locked from the inside out. One of the quotes is, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find and those who knock, it is open. So C.S. Lewis is saying there's still this eternal lasting separation in his mind, but he is unwilling to believe that God is going to be punishing humans forever. And so he says what 
what hell is, is the place where humans are essentially punishing themselves uh, by refusing to choose uh, the good life, the peace, the, the non-evil, whatever. But then you've got views of hell that are essentially, uh, those are all assuming that hell is permanent. Then you've got a whole lineup of views that say that hell is temporary. And it's all assuming a restorative idea of God, a restorative idea of justice, a restorative idea of salvation. So interestingly, I didn't know until I was doing some research that there's all these uh, kind of reflections and some of the older rabbinic writings uh, post-Christianity, uh, but long time ago, uh, that pretty much the, the most popular view is that hell is essentially purgatorial. Uh, that its its function is to get people to the point where they would repent of their evil, and as soon as they repent, uh, they can come into heaven. Um, and there's some hilarious stuff in there. Like one guy said, they're like discussing why would some people get to hell, and one of them is if anybody talks crap on rabbinic scholars like himself, then that person goes to hell. <laughs> it's this hilarious little note. Uh, but one literally they they. Uh, guess at the amount of time. So for one, it was three months. For some, it was 12 months. But somewhere in that range, uh, a little less than a year is how long they assume it will take time for, for those people to, through the experience of hell, be transformed into choosing, opting into heaven. So Hitler maybe takes 12 months. Others maybe more like three months, something like that. But then you have a totally different view, right? Because then hell is not something that God is doing for, you know, to prop up his own glory, but it's, uh, it's this temporary transformative uh, piece. So then you have others who will say, we have no idea how long it will take, but who am I to say that God is incapable of doing what God is clearly, and Jesus taught God wants to do, which is to save everyone, right? It's the John 3.16 poster. <laughs> God was willing to risk his own life to try to save the whole world. Who are we to say that God will fail at that? We just don't know how long it's going to take. So maybe it'll feel like it'll take an eternity for, for Hitler to finally come around. Uh, but this view is it's Christian universalism. So the Pipers of the world will say these people are heretics and they aren't Christians. Many of the best, most loving and smartest Christians throughout humanity have said, I think the most Christian idea is to believe that eventually everyone will be uh, in heaven. Or most, and then you can have spectrums, most everyone and maybe some opt out. And then you can uh, theorize of what's going to happen to those people. But one thing I think is important, and this is, uh, we're eventually going to get to doing our conversation uh, on sexuality, homosexuality, the whole affirming LGBTQ conversation. But, but here's what I think is worth pointing out. In that conversation, the, the basically two predominant sides. One side is non-affirming predominantly on the basis of what they perceive to be orthodoxy, doctrine. They're standing by what they perceive to be the, the doctrine of the church to say that homosexuality is a sin. And all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians who are not themselves gay or queer or transsexual or bi, but have friends or loved ones who are, who have moved to an affirming position, which is thousands and thousands of thousands of people, have predominantly done that out of empathy. Empathy to not see those people suffer. And essentially we've been in this war <laughs> that's pairing empathy at the expense, in some people's heads, of doctrine to doctrine at the expense of empathy. And I think it's exactly parallel to this conversation of hell. 
those who are on the side of this double predestination and we're going to relish in the suffering of others, we're going to relish that some are in hell while we're in heaven, are leaning into what they perceive to be doctrinal orthodoxy so hard that they have utterly lost the, the sense of Christian empathy and love. I actually think some people have lost the capacity for Christian empathy and love. If you actually right now are currently relishing in the idea that other people will, will be in, in hell. And those that lean towards the universalism angle are leaning predominantly into empathy and, and Christian brotherly love to say that I could not stand you, friend, or you, brother or sister, being in hell and still want to be in this heaven. And they're willing to risk the, whatever sense of doctrinal, traditional uh, orthodoxy, or even just, like you said, Nate, popularity in the church because of that empathy. Uh, and that is why I say, I think, if you don't at least want to be a universalist, and we'll get into some of the, the theology next time, uh, I think you're missing some of the very heart of Christianity. It's not because people want a, a Christian universalist. There's a whole other spectrum of people that just say, there will be no judgment, everyone gets in, I'm... I personally find that really uh, uncompelling for the reasons we started talking about the show, because uh, then the Hitlers of the world are never held accountable. I don't believe that's good news <laughs> for the world. Uh, so I, that's kind of a, a more typical liberal universalism, which is basically just there is no hell uh, and there's no judgment. Uh, Christian universalism is to say that uh, I will hope, while I still have hope, that if there is such a thing as hell, that no one will be there. And if there is such a thing as heaven, that everyone will be there. And I will refuse to conceptualize of myself rejoicing in a thing called heaven while one of my kin is is kept out. Yeah, that's where people would go. Like, And then because of that, I will go to the ends of the earth to tell people so that they don't go to hell. I will preach the gospel to them. So I think, and this is where I want to talk about more. We have to break this episode, but like, that's where I want to talk about this more is like, it's, I think it's the same motivation. So as long as you remove the rejoicing in the people that are in hell group, just the fact that then I think some of the motivation is the same. It's like this, we don't want to see anyone there. Like you just said, I think that is motivating a lot of people to go out and try to save people from hell from that place so let's talk about this more um, we got to break this one but we want to do uh, a number of more episodes on hell and um, we're going to be mixing in your thoughts and your experiences and your stories into these episodes so thank you so much for sending those in if you have any questions or if you want to just talk and share your story you can do that all at almostheretical.com we'll see you next time peace And I really vividly remember hearing about hell as a child, that if you didn't pray to accept Christ as your savior, that's where you would go. So I often remember my mom having the 700 club on and anytime they would ask if you wanted to pray to accept Christ, I would pray with them. I probably did it 50 to 70 times. I was always afraid what if I hadn't prayed it right? And if it was really just that prayer and saying it correctly that kept you out of hell, I wanted to do it again and again.